Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. We begin today's show with a few new results from the midterm election. The news is a mixed bag, but we do have some insight into what exactly stopped the red wave, and it appears to be specifically unmarried women. And I break that down and explain uh, what my take is and share perhaps where the Republican Party's messaging should go for, from here on that subject matter. Also, I will note there is one detail that we cover in the opening, and that is the latest in the Senate results from Nevada. But since the show began, since we recorded, a big tranche of mail-in ballots came in that favored Democrats. So that race got closer between when we recorded uh, the monologue and when we're recording these podcast bumpers. So uh, important to note that. So as always, go to Breitbart.com to get the latest on any breaking story imaginable. Then after we get into some of the election details, we talk about Biden's gloating. He had a press conference where he was, uh, I think, far too rosy, considering that his party was still rebuked, though maybe not quite as roundly as we anticipated. But not a great day for Biden, but Biden certainly acted like it was great. It is uh, typical, I would say, of how he uh, comports himself in the public. And we play some clips and break those down, plus a few other news items before we speak with our guest, Chris Kobach, who's a former Kansas Secretary of State, a periodic contributor to Breitbart.com, and is now the state's attorney general-elect, which is very cool because it is a pretty big political comeback for him. And we talk about how this race differed from past races of his, how he was able to make that comeback, and most importantly, what his agenda is going to be in a position of uh, deep power. He's an incredibly bright and well-educated person and a great person to have in such a role. So let's get into it. lot of ongoing races that are noteworthy. And I will start there updating you on some of the actual data and details. Um, we are looking at a few important ones. Uh, first of all, a couple things became official, which we suspected yesterday during the day, which is Ron Johnson winning his Senate race against Mandela Barnes. And um, I loved that uh, Ron Johnson very quickly got mad at Mandela Barnes for failing to concede the race. Because recall, you know who are, uh, <laughs> we know who are the biggest threats to our democracy. It is, of course, the maggots who would never concede a close race. And then you get one of the most left-wing guys running, period, maybe ever. Mandela Barnes, a true radical, and uh, thus far, I don't think he's conceded, unless he's conceded since I uh, put away my computer last night. So it's the it's it, it, it. What's noteworthy in particular about this is how many races have you seen where the person, either Democrat or the Republican, who lost the race, didn't concede. Thus far, this is very rare. I asked Boyle to count them for me, and I think he came up with one other one. I forget which one he mentioned. But it's the for all of this talk about how democracy is on the ballot, it seemed like both sides have been remarkably civil. Uh, no rioting, which breaks a streak for us in America, where we've started rioting after elections. Rioting is the norm throughout the world, which is sad to say. You would think the human spirit and the human species is more elevated than that, but apparently we're not. We do a lot of rioting. And I always found this very curious when I was just starting to pay attention to politics when I would watch France which I thought of as, you know, they're supposed to be the most sophisticated country, almost intimidatingly sophisticated with their art and their wine and their rolling hills and their vast museums and their political riots. So whenever there'd be an election, there would be a riot that went on afterwards. So it made me think, huh, that's curious that it happens. But it never happened here. And I always thought that was a very, as a point of pride, but that started really with 2016. I think we've had a few rioty type um, elections in a row, uh, I didn't see any of that. And I saw both sides being remarkably civil when they lost. 
So, and uh, it's also interesting because it's really going to be a knife's edge for a lot of the um, a lot of these uh, crucial races. So anyway, so Ron Johnson wins, and Mandel Barnes, as far as he can see, as far as I can tell, uh, it is official that Georgia will be a runoff. And this is one where I do believe you're going to see Herschel Walker as the favorite. A libertarian pulled off a couple percentage point vote from both candidates, but I imagine more from Walker. Um, and then that will be a uh, the, and and that will be part either for control of the Senate, or it will be to add to a Republican majority by one vote. And I think that favors Republicans as well. I don't think there'll be a huge motivation for Democrats to go out yet again for Warnock, and they'll have less time to community organize the mail-in vote. Now, people have got to get focused because recall what happened after 2020. Republicans were crying in their beer and they decided, well, we don't want to vote in the Georgia runoff because we were very upset. So we were very upset with the results of the Georgia race because of the Republicans who were in charge. Brad Raffensperger in particular, and to a lesser extent, Governor Kemp. I, I, I never quite understood what Governor Kemp was supposed to do to stop Raffensperger from entering into this consent decree with Stacey Abrams, um, which made it so that all these mail votes counted that wouldn't have counted in 2016. They did count in 2020, and that was the difference and why Trump lost that state. But then a lot of Republicans, the MAGA Republicans in particular, pouted and stayed home and gave two Senate seats to the socialists. Uh, this is something that is rarely repeated, though Ian Coulter does write about it in her column this week, which is going to appear Breitbart if it isn't up already. So it's kind of noteworthy that came up in a different context on Breitbart.com. Uh, but that's going to be a big one. And if you're out in Georgia, we're going to get focused. And if you're inclined to continue to support and to continue to participate, I think there's going to be some real burnout and some real fatigue on both sides. And there's going to be a crucial seat that's still up for grabs. Okay, other races. Nevada. Uh, Adam Laxalt is still ahead in that race. He was ahead yesterday. Very few new vote has come in. Um, a lot of the vote that is remaining is in Clark County, which should favor Catherine Cortez Masto, who is the Democrat. But it doesn't look like a wide enough margin that is going to surmount Laxalt's lead. So I think the smart money is that Laxalt is going to win that seat for the Republicans. Um, that is big for a number of reasons. As noted previously on this broadcast, I think every seat the Republicans pick up makes it more likely they win Georgia because it makes it so that it is more of a red wave and it does encourage more Republicans to get involved in that runoff. Another thing is Adam Laxalt is very Breitbartian relative to the Senate candidates who are out there. Um, a guy who has courted this audience and has courted um, I would say a lot of people who are uh, politically simpatico with the average Breitbart newsroom, uh, the, the employee and the average Breitbart audience member. So that's a kind of a double win there. That would not just be a Republican win and that wouldn't just be helpful for the Georgia runoff. It would also be, I think, helpful directly to Breitbart in the show. So very exciting out there. The Arizona races got more interesting because it seemed like of the vote that came in, I'll start with the Senate race, where Mark Kelly's up by 5%. Uh, so that turns out to be about 100,000, maybe 95,000 votes currently in Arizona with 70% reporting. Um, Masters basically fell backwards last night, but some political predictors believe he is slightly ahead. So this is in the Washington Post. And this came out fairly late yesterday that uh, Blake Masters is actually behind in the vote count, but slightly favored to win the seat, according to the Washington Post. Though Mark Kelly still has a chance. A huge batch of votes came in late yesterday that favored Katie Hobbs in the governor's race versus Carrie Lake, of course, fan favorite for all, all of MAGA land. So Hobbs is now ahead by about a half a percent, a little more than half a percent. So about 13,000 votes. But there's still 30% let, left to count. And I think all the smart money at this point is that on Lake is going to come from behind and win that race. Though, again, not a done deal. Uh, in terms of house races, 
Another thing that happened that was pretty cool. Oh, I, I guess I mentioned the last Senate race is uh, Kelly Shabaka and Lisa Murkowski uh, with Shabaka's ahead, 80% in, but it's a ranked choice voting system. So it could literally take weeks for us to get to the bottom of this. There is an article on this at Breitbart. This type of stuff that drives me crazy. I, I am personally researching ranked choice voting. I, 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 it rubs me the wrong way. I do not know that much about it. And it's only used a couple times. It makes a big difference. Uh, Murkowski will be a part of the Republican conference, but again, votes with Democrats two-thirds of the time and is a foe of the America First values that I have in general and is an ally of both Mitch McConnell and the Democrat establishment. So Kelly Shabaka is another one who would be very Breitbartian, has a narrow lead, but what does that mean for ranked choice voting? So if Murkowski wins enough second-choice votes because he's a third-party Democrat— then she could win that race, and I'm not holding my breath that Shabaka is going to hold on in that one, though she's winning currently. Um, it, but the fact of the matter is, is it could be two weeks because of the ranked choice voting system to sort this out. I have no clue why this is. Uh, my term for it, which I used on radio yesterday, which was very popular, even people in, in Breitbart were reaching out to me saying they liked it, was I was referring to this as fourth world. It's the, it's kind of the, you know, because it, it doesn't fit neatly into any of the first world. You should be able to do what Florida does, which is the vote comes in, the vote gets counted, the results go out same day. There's no reason it has to be any different. Second world is, you know, communist dictatorships. So I, it's just, you know, whatever vote comes in is BS. Um, third world is similar to what we're doing. I think this feels similar to what it would be like in a third world where the system is totally chaotic and no one really knows who won. Uh, but we do this weird thing where some of our states are really good, Florida in particular, as is so often the, the theme on the show, where everything seems to be very straightforward and everyone seems to know what's going on and everything is very efficient and effective. And then, But then we have other states like uh, uh, California, where we've got half of the vote counted in the L.A. mayoral race. And people are talking about it being a photo finish. Like, like who knows? Um, it, it's the who knows if it's going to be a photo finish because we're not going to get results. The results take forever to count. Which, which really is a humiliation in, um, uh, which is, really is a humiliation in so many ways. But I will tell you in that race in particular, even though only 40% of the vote has been counted, which is ridiculous. Rick Caruso, who was recently a Republican, is ahead of Karen Bass, who is a Democrat star. So some good news out there. Um, other races that have not been called that are, I'm sure, on your mind. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is the Adam Frisch Lauren Boebert race. Lauren Boebert, of course, is regular on Breitbart, one of the most popular conservatives on social media. And this was the race that would be the biggest upset of any race in the country if the Democrat is able to win. There's been no race that has uh, saw a where the the incumbent was such an overwhelming favorite on either side that it could go could be an upset. And as of now, with just a few vote remaining to be counted, you want to get this: the margin is Frisch is ahead by about sixty votes. 64 to be precise. So that one is uh, way too close to call. But again, as of last night, uh, Bobert was down by 2%. So a new tranche comes in and favors Bobert. But again, 65 votes ahead for Democrat there. So um, I spoke to Jim Jordan on the show yesterday. He was negative on uh, Bobert holding on to that race. and uh, But I, I'm guessing he'd be more positive now couple other ones of uh, some of our favorite house races, which have not gone particularly well. A lot of the ones that I was hoping in a red wave, um, and I walked through all those on yesterday's show, so feel free to grab the podcast uh, or catch up on On Demand, the SXM app, and go through some of these. Um, but a couple other ones we got our eye on, the 27th District, California, with Mike Garcia, who's up by 16%, which is massive, because that was a race he only won by a couple percentage points last time, and then the district became more Democrat and now it's a blowout. Um, the Katie Poro, uh, I'm sorry, Katie Porter Scar Scott Baugh race in Orange County, California. Uh, Porter is ahead at this point by about 600 votes. I'm sorry, um, 1,600 votes. 
with 58% reporting, uh, a type of person Democrats would love to send to the White House, but might lose her House race. So those are the updates right now on the political side. I'm sure I'm missing some of them. If you want to know about any of them, feel free to give us a buzz, 866-95-PATRIOT, and I could fill you in. But it's looking a little more red wavy this morning than it did yesterday morning and a lot more than it did on uh, Tuesday night. So conceivably, we're going to see Republicans uh, pick up a, uh, a number of seats that are remaining. So we could see them get all the way to, I guess, 50, 51. I think um, I'll do the exact math for you guys. But it, it is, the, we could see the Republicans end up picking up a seat after all in the Senate in a very bad map for Republicans. Even though traditionally, this is supposed to be a, a wave election, uh, when you've got an unpopular Democrat president and you've got a, a midterm, you got inflation, all this stuff, in, it leads to generally the party that's out of power picking up a lot more seats than the Republicans did. But there's still some bright spots. As I noted, there's some of these governor races where Republicans did well, but they're not going to win. But I was thinking about the Lee Zeldin race. Lee Zeldin is heroic. Lee Zeldin is a hero. And I wish he won. But I will tell you that when you see things like Republicans sweeping all four Long Island House seats, that's because they had a credible Republican on the ballot for governor. There's no way this would have happened without Lee Zeldin, who gave up his House seat. So Republicans picking up a bunch of seats in the state of New York is 100% due to the fact that Lee Zeldin mounted a terrific campaign and was able to give hope for New Yorkers that they could stand up to the Democrat Party establishment that's been running and ruining that state. So in defeat, Zeldin made a heroic effort and he dragged a bunch of seats along with him. I mean, it, it is truly, if there are medals doled out in politics, and there's not, and there shouldn't be, but if there was, then uh, he would get one for sure. And but still, he doesn't, get the, he doesn't get the W, so to speak. Um, and then there are a few other governor races like that. The sad one yesterday, maybe the worst news is it does not look like Christine Drazen is going to make it in Oregon with uh, 73% reporting. She's down by um, almost 3% now, which is only 40,000 votes or so. But she, the that race is getting called by some prognosticators. Um, not everyone, though. Um, so they, I, I guess that one's not totally in the bag, but a lot of people have called that race for Tina Kotek, the Democrat, probably the worst news that came out yesterday in terms of a race that one uh, we were hoping maybe we would get a big, uh, uh, upset victory on the Republican side, but we're not going to other things that are noteworthy is the cook political report has tabulated that the Republicans are winning the house popular vote by 6.4% even though they're just scraping by in terms of control of the House in terms of seats. So what are we to make of this? This stands up with my points I was making yesterday where I'm not as doomy or gloomy as some other people who were expecting a bigger red wave, which I was. I'm still seeing a fair number of uh, silver linings. And I've been noting that with that, uh, what I walked through with the governor's races, which were wildly disappointing in terms of final results, but still not without their, their bright spots. And the same thing apparently happened in the House, where the Republicans had a lot of votes. Republicans typically do not do well in popular vote. We do much better in terms of electoral vote. Well, that didn't happen this time, and I don't fully understand it. But I do know that is, uh, I, I don't think that's a bad thing that we did very well in terms of uh, actually getting people to the polls and getting people to turn in their ballots. So that's another thing that I think is uh, of note. Um, and again, if you want to give any thoughts on the red wave, on the Republicans' ability to market themselves and their values and where we go from here, uh, by all means, chime in. I will tell you the most disturbing data point I saw yesterday, and this is one we really need to work out, was I saw that, according to at least one survey, the demographic that really swung this election was uh, unmarried women. 
unmarried women are breaking to Democrats uh, by about 40%. So about a 40% advantage, maybe high 30s for Democrats. And I was thinking about this. And I was thinking, what is it that the Republican Party is offering this demographic of people to make them want to vote for Republicans? Now, if you're a political junkie, and I know there are unmarried women in the audience right now, and you're listening and you're thinking, well, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, it's the, I pay attention. I care about crime. I care about immigration. Okay, but take the type of people who don't wake up on a Thursday, two days after the election, and immediately throw the radio on and put on, you know, conservative talk radio. So for more casual people who are not as engaged in civic life, but will show up and vote, what is the messaging that the Republican Party is offering this group of people? It's not very good, is it? Now, traditionally, and we do have a member of our staff at Breitbart who is a former academic and has actually studied this and did a part of his thesis on this, that traditionally the psychology of this demographic includes a lot of people who replace family, specifically a husband, now I guess these days, husband or wife, um, but with a bigger state. So they feel a sense of security when the state is bigger. And that, of course, favors Democrats because Democrats openly advocate for a bigger state. So now let's look at the circumstances where we're at now, where people are delaying marriage longer, which means they're voting in more elections before they're married. Marriage turns people conservative, men and women alike, but apparently particularly women, because men, I guess, are more naturally conservative um, in general. And what are the slate of issues that people are discussing? First one is inflation. Now, single women are not going to be the type of people who are going to care that much that your mortgage rate would go up a lot. They're not really caring as much as a demographic about their 401ks getting hit hard. So what's the second biggest issue? It's abortion. Abortion is a huge issue for this group of people. And it is one where some of it, I believe, is cultural. I don't think all single women are you know, constantly getting abortions, even though that is exactly the way the media would like for you to portray it. Simone Sanders, who was a former Bernie Sanders spokesperson and then Biden spokesperson, referred to abortion as a kitchen table issue. Now, that's absurd for me and you. But for a lot of people, it probably is. Probably for a lot of single women that's a, who are you know, not married. That is a kitchen table issue, maybe. So what are the next slate of issues? Crime, you would think that would favor Republicans. Immigration, uh, you would think that would favor Republicans. But again, maybe this is sliding too far down the list. Because the single women are very vulnerable to crime. So you would think that would be a factor, but uh, apparently not, not doing the trick. And guns, which is probably irrelevant one way or the other, because they don't have kids who they worry about mass shootings. And they're probably not a huge gun-toting crowd on average. But I'm looking at 2024 and beyond, where the Democrats are going to run a strategy where they're going to put abortion literally on the ballot. They're going to put it into state constitutions, even if it's going to fail, because they're going to see it as a way to turn people out to the polls. And this is something that Republicans need to get prepared for this right now, today. Think about this, that this is a very obvious strategy, a playbook that we're going to see run, which is that you add, if you're a Democrat, abortion to the ballot, literally speaking, that will turn out the vote more, that will add to your turnout. So this was a problem for Republicans in 2022, and it is guaranteed to get worse in 2024 and 2026. So whatever disappointment we have now, it is going to get worse in that regard for the next election cycle. So what do Republicans do? I think you continue to message the way we have message on abortion, which is convincing more and more people that, you know, it is murder and that the science is on the side of keeping the child, that a lot of bad guys are part of the abortion industry. I'm talking about all those people who were uh, uh, torturing figuratively, but kind of literally, all of those uh, Christian groups that were, you know, crisis pregnancy centers, etc. over the summer, the summer of rage. And how there is deep psychological trauma for the women and the men involved alike. All that stuff needs to be messaged, but we need to do a little better job of it. And there's going to be another issue because that group of people are not fans of President Trump. And President Trump is almost certainly going to be uh, on the ballot as, as of now, unless something really different changes from where we're at. And uh, President Trump is going to be behind 
anyway in a general election if he runs and if he gets nominated, which is the most likely scenario at this point. And so he's going to be, you know, he's, I don't want to use the word toxic with this group of people, so I won't. But as noteworthy, even if those of you, and I've said this, I'm, I'm agnostic in a primary. If there's a primary, uh, there's a very good chance I'll support President Trump when it's all said and done. I'm uh, very open-minded to it. He's got a lot of gifts over a lot of other politicians who are out there. But is uh, he will not do well with this group of people, and he's going to be behind anyway when he enters the general election. So very important to see that. People don't like the Democrats. They don't like the way they dealt with the economy. But they do care, a lot of people do care about this abortion issue in a major way. So, and I want your thoughts on that. How do you think the Republicans can deal with it? And is it going to be whining about cheat by mail as I do so often? Or is it to get organized? And to, to start thinking, thinking that we need to get on board with the reality. And we need to deal with reality on reality's terms. And come up with a strategy to organize to be prepared for this both in terms of messaging and making sure religious people in particular who are appalled that this issue is driving so many people to the polls and get them engaged and get them making sure there's a massive turnout to stop codifying abortion into constitutions and thus bring a blue wave for Democrats along with it in the next couple election cycles. Will Republicans get ahead of that? Will they prepare? I, of course, am very skeptical and I'm sure you guys are too. So going back to... President Trump, Kaylee McEnany, the former press secretary, a Fox News person now, um, before Fox News, she was very popular on uh, Breitbart social media whenever we would profile her. And um, she suggested that Trump should delay his inevitable presidential announcement. Um, Trump has suggested he's not going to delay it. So we'll get an announcement next week that he's running for president. Um, I think he wants to get out there first, be the first person in. I think that does favor him. Because that creates a, at least some chatter that if someone like a Ron DeSantis jumps in, that it would be divisive or divisive. Um, it, 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 divisive and divisive mean the same thing. They're spelled the same. But you can pronounce it differently depending on how smug you feel like feeling at that moment. So that is going to be a huge topic, I'm sure, on this show until DeSantis decides formally if he's going to run or not. Um, I would imagine he's more likely he's going to run after Florida was the biggest bright spot of the election and Trump throwing all sorts of shade at DeSantis online, attacking him pretty mercilessly on a true social, which will continue. Trump does this stuff. So he does this. He's going to, he does a lot of taunts on social media. So that is uh, going to happen in, if there is a primary and that should not be a reason for people not to run. But it will be something where you all will be asked whether or not you think that's a good use of all of our time. Because there's going to be a lot of me coming in the show, reporting on, here's a thing that Trump said to mock whichever Republican was running against him. And some of it will be funny. Some of it will be less funny this time around. And we'll spend a lot of time on it. But that is the world we are heading into. Um, all right. Other items that I want to bring up before we get it, get to the phones, 866-95-PATRIOT. Joe Biden is defiant. He's excited. He said the red wave didn't happen and he's not going to change anything. Um, let's play. I think this one is cut four. Go ahead, Mr. Zach. What in the next two years do you intend to do differently uh, to change people's uh, opinion of the direction of the country, particularly as you contemplate a run for president in 2024? Nothing. So he's going to do nothing different. So that is, I think, a little arrogant. And he got uh, dragged by this, uh, for this, by a few people. David Axelrod was out there, a Democrat strategist, has seen with uh, Obama's rise, saying, well, I mean, it really wasn't that great of a night for Biden. He did lose, and his policies were sort of rejected. But look for Biden to be emboldened. I think he feels like he got away with stuff. He said that potential in investigations into Hunter were uh, almost laughable or almost comedy, I think is what he said. So, but look for Biden to put his foot on the gas in the lame duck session and to, uh, he's a, a pretty resilient politically, needless to say, for a guy who's been in politics longer than, you know, maybe any American ever. Isn't that a thought? Maybe longer than any American 
ever. I guess that's not true because we had some of those seats like the, what's his name? Not Debbie Dingle. The Debbie Dingle's husband. What was his name? John Dingle? No, John is is who was Debbie Dingle married to? He was um yeah John Dingle who was in the Senate for like seven hundred years, and then he passed away and turned his seat over to his wife. <laughs> that is something. So he was in the Congress and then he was in no no just the Congress. He was not in the Senate, but he was in a congressman from in um, Michigan, if I recall. He's called the, 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 oh, he was the Dean of the House of Representatives. When was his first election? Uh, it was just, it was uh, decades and decades ago. Yeah, 1955 to 2015. <laughs> so crazy. Oh, fourth world. That's fourth world stuff. That actually is uh, second world. That's like communist leader. Oh, what a, and he did so great in his 60 years in the Congress. She'd be so proud. Um, so that's, uh, so I mean, but Biden is not quite at 60. So I can't say he's been the longest serving politician in the country, but it's getting close. I mean, it's well over 40 years now. He's been integral to American life. Um, other stuff from his press conference, which is traditional that there's a press conference that takes place after a midterm with the president. That's where Obama famously says, said we got shellacked, which in retrospect was semi-charming. That Obama said that. Um, not to say uh, uh, Obama's charms are effective on me. In, 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 in that quote is aged pretty well. After he suffered some pretty bad losses, um, but let's play some more Biden cut too, please. But what I can't do is I can't guarantee that um, we're going to be able to uh, get rid of inflation. But I do think we can. So this is, uh, I think, criminal because he signed something called the Inflation Reduction Act. How could that be the case that we have a Inflation Reduction Act when he has not, uh, the, when he's not sure he can reduce inflation? How could we have spent hundreds of billions of dollars to reduce inflation if we're not going to reduce inflation? Oh yeah, because it's not a good way to reduce inflation. Is not uh, generally speaking, spending a bunch of money we don't have is not the best way to do it. So that said, this also indicates I'm trying to figure out if Biden's going to run and uh, him saying if he was not going to run, he would probably start saying stuff like, I guarantee we're going to get rid of inflation because talking about inflation is semi-inflationary. Almost everything is inflationary. So the fact that we've had such little inflation over the last couple decades is pretty remarkable because just breathing seems to be inflationary. So uh, it feels like him saying he can't guarantee it is a political thing for his own future. Because you would think he'd be doing a pep talk right now saying, I guarantee you we're getting rid of it. Because he, he, he doesn't come in there trying to be honest with you. He tries to be political. So he thinks politically that's the best messaging. Um, this was mind-blowing. Cut three plays. This is the current lead of Breitbart.com right now. He's on the phone congratulating a Californian recently and then someone in uh, uh up in scranton pennsylvania the congressman got elected he said can you help us make sure we're able to have high-speed rail rail service from scranton to new york new york city i said yeah we can we can first of all it'll make it a lot easier take a lot of vehicles off the road and we have more money in the in the pot now already already out there we voted for than the entire money we spent on Amtrak to begin with. And it's the same way. For example, I talked about through the campaign that we're going okay, to that's good. You guys got that? We're going to have a high-speed rail from Scranton to New York City. <laughs> I mean, that is where he's either trolling or this is where his uh, mental malfunction has kicked in, this quote. I think he's trolling now. That is hilarious. There will be no high-speed rail between New York and Scranton, just to let you know, you Scranton residents, it's not going to happen. I say this as a Californian who spent my entire adult life being promised high-speed rails everywhere, and we never got one. And now, finally, they're trying to build one, and they're not trying to build it from L.A. to Vegas or L.A. to San Francisco or the places we've been promised. We're probably going to get one from Silicon Valley to a place an hour inland called Merced, which is a university town that's a lot cheaper, so they can uh, train in their cheap labor to work for their Silicon Valley companies. 
so they can get their houses cleaned and um, they can get their, uh, you know, their their uh, egg white omelet fetched for them. So that that's where the high speed rails come in. There's not going to be any Scranton in New York high speed rail. It's not going to happen. So, but he's still saying, "Hey, we could do that," because of all that money of yours that he's confiscated, and with all the IRS agents that potentially are going to get employed to, to to grab you by your ankles, turn you upside down, and shake you out until all the coins fall out of your pockets. I thought that was an unbelievable moment. Uh, Robert Marlowe, our uh, front page editor, and my real life father pointed that out. I thought that was pretty unbelievable catch that was buried there. Other stuff to keep an eye on. Uh, don't miss a Democrat. Lee Fink is Minnesota's first trans lawmaker. Lee Fink is very mannish, but uh, dresses like a woman. It's pink hair. So that's happening. Generation Z and millennials breaking big for Democrats. Part of this is what we talked about a lot in yesterday's show, how we went backwards in terms of technology. Um, in terms of getting the word out via new platforms and mediums, Republicans are doing worse. I, I, I avoid TikTok assiduously because it's Chinese mind control, but uh, Gen Z's on it. Some millennials do. Uh, Republicans are doing better, I think, on Instagram. I think there's a lot of viral content, but that's owned by Mark Zuckerberg. So do you trust that that will do well? I don't know. But we have to go where people are. And they're not as affected, Gen Z millennials, by things like inflation. I mean, I'm sure they would prefer less inflation. But where inflation really makes things difficult is with things like if you're going to buy a home. And if the value of your home decreases, that's where people get really upset. And if some of the stock market issues that we're seeing where people losing a lot of their net worth, unless they bought a bunch of NFTs or crypto, then they're not getting hit by the same exact issues that a lot of us talk about in this show, for example. Another trans one, this is mind-blowing, not political, but a biological male wins Miss America in New Hampshire teen beauty pageant. Brian Nguyen, a male who identifies a female, won the Miss Greater Dairy 2023 uh, pageant in New Hampshire. First trans title holder within the Miss America organization. And I will tell you what's most striking is that even if you accepted that Brian Nguyen was a woman, and Brian Wynn is not. Brian Wynn is a man. But even if you accepted Brian Wynn as a, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Bri- I guess he goes by Brianne. So it's, I think it's pronounced Brianne, even though it's spelled Brian. Ha! <laughs> it's funny. Um, there is not one quality that this person has that is classically beautiful. It, incredibly overweight, perhaps morbidly obese. So almost as disturbing as the trans obsession is the completely unhealthy body positivity movement where we're being told that non-beautiful features are beautiful to preserve people's self-esteem and egos. Okay, a couple other quick ones before we go to the phones. Pennsylvania voters reelected a dead Democrat state representative. So it just shows you Anthony Tony DeLuca died October the 9th and he won 85 years old. Um, it just shows you how punched out people are. A lot of people punched out. And chiggity check yourself before you wreck yourself as a society. If we're going to continue to do this, where we're so not paying attention, we're so not civically engaged, where we don't even know if our candidate is alive. But check this out also. How about this for an alternative take? I bet you some Democrats voted for him anyway, knowing he was dead. So that is another one that you got to think about, which is we're so partisan now that I bet you a lot of people knew he was dead and thought, well, I'll vote for him. And I'm I'm guessing um, the Democrats in charge of the state will sort it out. Massachusetts is now the 17th state to give driver's license to illegal aliens. Those of you who care about election integrity and about citizenship, do you think that makes things better or worse? Do you think it makes it more meaningful or less meaningful to be an American citizen? Do you think that makes our elections more secure or less? That is a rhetorical question. to have 
have Chris Kobach back on the show. He is the former Kansas Secretary of State. He's been in the show a number of times, though not recently, and is a contributor to Breitbart from time to time. He is now the Attorney General-elect of the state of Kansas, and he's got a pretty great list of priorities. We get into some of the details of his race and some of his agenda items for his term. Here's the interview. Chris, congratulations. Great to have you back on the show. Thank you. Great to be with you. So let's talk about your race. Uh, what did you do to uh, uh, cement the victory at this time? What were the issues you're running on? And um, uh, tell us about the details. Uh, yeah, well, I was running on a very specific uh, promise, I guess, or a commitment to voters. And that is that I would, uh, I, I expected that Biden in his second two years would likely increase, not decrease, his uh, use of executive orders to illegally uh, get around the constraints of federal law and maybe continue to violate the Constitution, as he's done numerous times already, and that I would I would sue to stop him and that, you know, my qualifications in that area were better than my opponents. And, of course, I've sued the Biden administration. I'm on my third lawsuit right now defending uh, members of the Air Force against the Biden vaccine mandate and that I you know had the qualifications to do it. And voters evidently agree. Uh, this is interesting because Kansas even though it's seen as a red state and you know typical conservative middle America, you guys have a record of electing Democrats to statewide office for some reason, and this is going to happen again with the governorship. Uh, it appears what di- what made your race different from the governor's race, and then the second part of this question is how do you intend to work an environment where you've got a Democrat governor? Well, you're right. Kansas, uh, although it is a red state, uh, it does have a pattern. It actually goes back 60 years of electing almost every, yeah, virtually every every other governor has been a Democrat. Um, and so the, you know, my race was different for a number of reasons. Uh, as I mentioned, mine was more focused on uh, dealing with the Biden administration's threat to the rule of law. Um, typically in governor's races, the Democrats attack really hard on the education issue. I think to a certain extent, the national uh, unease about the you know, the performance of our kids in, in education was was used by Democrats, but you know to falsely claim that the Republicans were going to take money away from schools. So I think that was a distinction between the two races. Also, typically uh, Democrats bring in a lot more outside money to uh, you know to win the governor's race, as, as I know all too well um, from four years ago. So. Uh, yeah, it was a, a different race, uh, but Kansas is um, it, it's demographically changing, too. We are a red state, but we have this huge metro area uh, of Kansas City. And as it has grown, as it has, uh, you know, income level and other demographics have changed, it's become more challenging uh, for the more solidly red parts of the state to uh, counteract uh, the, the metro area. So what do you think are the key issues that are that are driving people to vote for Democrats in a otherwise red state? Well, I, you know, I think one of them is, is this public education issue, and that's been around for a long time. And, you know, another one that Democrats really pushed hard uh, is, and, and this is not just true in Kansas, but everywhere, was, of course, the abortion issue. I don't think it changed minds. I think it motivated their base. Uh, this was a base-motivating election of uh, the 2022 November election certainly was in Kansas, and I think it was in most states. And so it, it did succeed in motivating their base, uh, and that's one of the reasons why Republicans failed to flip what was thought to be a competitive seat. That's the Kansas 3rd District. Again, that was in the Kansas City metro area. Um, and I think the abortion issue was probably used effectively uh, in that particular race. How many people are in the Kansas City metro area who are in the state of Kansas relative to Missouri? Uh, the area is a total of about 3 million people, and on the Kansas side, you have uh, about a million, just under a million. So It's so interesting, and this is always very confusing. I'm sure there are some people in the audience who aren't aware of this, but Kansas City is actually in Missouri and is the biggest state in Missouri, is the biggest city in Missouri, and yet, of course, that the metro area, of course, bleeds into the, the state of Kansas. Oh, what's the history of that? I'm sure you know this. How did it turn out? It's just so bizarre. Well, the, I mean, the, the Kansas City was based where, where the Kansas River flows into the Missouri River. And of course, the Missouri River is the, is the boundary uh, of, of the two states for, for part of the boundary. And, and uh, the Missouri side grew uh, as the sort of, you know, that's where the old downtown is. But then over the last 
probably 40 years of a a big competing metro area in what's called Overland Park, Kansas, and and Olathe, Kansas, uh, exists as well. So you have not as big as Dallas-Fort Worth, but you kind of have these two different, uh, you know, metro centers, one on the Kansas side, one on the Missouri side, uh, and, and it just continues to grow. And that uh, that growth has, you know, changed the demographics in Kansas and made, you know, given us a, a metro area that's far more liberal uh, than the rest of the state. So let's talk about your agenda now that you are going to be the attorney general of the state. And let's first talk about uh, illegal immigration and the fentanyl crisis. This is an area where you've distinguished yourself over the last few years as a national figure, and now you're going to have some power to deal with some of it. What's the agenda? Well, uh, for example, on illegal immigration, I think the the, the biggest problem is the Biden administration's refusal to um, abide by federal law and its ordering of agents, ICE agents and Border Patrol agents to break the law. There's a lawsuit that I'm involved in currently as a private attorney, and that's representing some Texas sheriffs. Uh, that case is potentially going to be combined with a case that's already in front of the Supreme Court brought by the state of Texas and the state of Missouri um, to, to hopefully compel the Biden administration to start deporting people as federal law requires and start detaining people. So that right there is an example of one case where the Biden administration is breaking a law. But I fully expect that if they lose this, that they, the Biden administration, lose this one, they'll find some other way to refuse to break the law. They have committed themselves fully to an open border uh, for political reasons. And if they do break yet, you know, find yet another way, whether we've seen the remain in Mexico policy violated, all kinds of things, uh, then it'll, it's incumbent, in my opinion, upon the state attorneys general who believe in the rule of law to, to sue to take them to court. So, uh, the, by, the fentanyl crisis is a border crisis issue. Um, then, of course, there'll be things internally as, a, as you know, the chief law enforcement officer of Kansas that we'll be doing uh, to address fentanyl and, and to deter it within the state, the dealing of fentanyl. Um, but, yeah, it's so many of these issues, which you think of as a state crime issue, uh, are, in fact, tied to a, a national policy of the Biden administration. Uh, it does appear as though Biden is really flirting with some unlawful behavior and some unlawful, not just executive actions, but the way he's attempting to appropriate funds. I know that one example of this was his uh, student loan reduction, which is really just a debt transfer, uh, which is uh, on hold right now. Um, I, I would think that this uh, this disinformation board he tried to assemble could have potentially been illegal as well. Uh, the, what do you think is the top priorities for you to hold the Biden administration accountable? Where are you going to look into first? Well, one of them is the case you just mentioned, that is the uh, student loan forgiveness. There's a coalition of six states that brought a case, and that case resulted in a temporary injunction, and Kansas is one of those six states, and I intend to you know, continue that litigation, uh, taking the baton from my predecessor. Um, I think you're going to see more areas like this where he just thinks he can get away with an executive decree because he's got some federal agency that has some remote authority in the area, but of course he doesn't have clear statutory authority. And and, in in that particular case, he tried to unilaterally basically spend half a trillion dollars, which is what the student loan forgiveness would amount to, and the executive has no such authority. Uh, either under federal statute or generally under our constitutional principles, where the you know Congress is the branch that must appropriate and spend and tax. Um, so I think he's going to do more of the same. He'll 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 come up with some issue, whether it's uh, driven by his green agenda or or driven by you know trying to buy votes, which is essentially I think what we would all agree the the student loan forgiveness was. And he'll just try to do it through executive action. And really, the only official who can stop him in that situation. Uh, is a state attorney general who's willing to take him to court. Um, the One of the sleeper issues, I think, for this election is that I think tech manipulation and tech's monopolistic control over our flow of information in this country played a major factor. I think one of the reasons why the red wave wasn't as big as it is is because some of the complaints some of us on the right have had about tech monopolies have only gotten worse over the last couple of years, though they've kind of uh, they've fallen off our front pages um, more often than not. But I do think that big tech is a big threat to uh, our democracy. If you want to borrow an expression, the Democrats keep using. Uh, do you see a avenue for you to hold tech accountable in your new perch as a, a attorney general? 
you know, it's hard to predict that right now because sometimes these, these tech monopolies, and I think you're right to call them that, uh, they they stay within the boundaries of the law, but other times they 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 bend the law, and you know it's in those instances whether it if it's a state law, then that's where the state attorney general can act. Um, you know, typically they they tend to be violating these federal statutes, and unfortunately the Department of Justice has no interest whatsoever in holding them accountable, in my opinion. Uh, and, and so we're, you know, we're lacking some protection there. But if they if they violate a state law, then in that case, a, a state attorney general can absolutely act. If the, if the federal government is through some agency is tacitly blessing that action, then there's an opportunity uh, for for the states to step in. But it'll really depend on what they do. Uh, are there any other attorneys general that you're excited to work with the most of the crop of Republicans? Because there's some really strong ones out there. Yeah, uh, certainly uh, Ken Paxton is, uh, you know, one who's uh, I've known. And Texas has been leading the charge for the past two years uh, in pushing back against the Biden administration. They've, they've brought more than 20 lawsuits. Uh, you know, my hope is that uh, now with, with my leadership of Kansas, Kansas and Texas will be uh, standing side by side and leading the charge. Uh, that's a good place to start. Last one, I got about a half a minute left. The crime's a big factor in a lot of what Americans are talking about right now. Uh, do you have a plan to take on crime? Yeah, there's actually a new type of crime that many people may not be aware of and that needs to be addressed, and that's this organized retail crime. Uh, it's not just a you know a single individual knocking off a store. You, you have these large organizations now taking on these box stores, Home Depots, Lowe's, Menards. It's called push-outs. They just you know, push you know, hundreds of thousands of merchandise out the door. They're not stopped at the door anymore. Uh, and then they move on and hit a, a dozen stores in a day. And so that, that type wow. of calls for a new law enforcement response. That's today's show. Thanks to producers Zach Jones and Greg Eben and Robert Marlowe who helped me pick topics and all of you who've told 10,000 friends and family members about the broadcast. Thanks for listening. I got stars in my-